Hello and welcome to the Deer Apparition Podcast, the podcast where we talk about all things regarding the deer hunter. I'm one of your hosts, Drew, and as always, I'm joined by Hunter and Steve. How are you guys doing? Not too bad. I'm just living another day in the life, you know? God, my ass hurts. What's up? He's also living another day in the life. (laughs) Oh no. Things are going wrong. So, even start. <laughs> so I've lost my train of thought. Can we try that again? <laughs> sure. Just keep it going. Yeah, let's keep it all going. This, all like, this is staying in. Literally, yeah, it is. Literally, the second that happened, my fucking guitar knocked over. I'm like, okay. Yeah. We are professionals. Yes. Yes, yes it's the po- it's the podcasting gods. They they are displeased. All right, let's take this right from the top. Dear Apparition Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Dear Apparition Podcast, the podcast where we talk about all things regarding the deer hunter. I'm one of your hosts, Drew, and as always, I'm joined by Hunter and Steve. How are you guys doing today? Doing pretty good. Just living another day in the life, you know? Uh, yes. I did not totally say something else. How are you? <laughs> Wonderful. We're doing great. We're doing great. <laughs> yes, obviously we're all doing good. <laughs> oh my so if God. you haven't listened to the previous episode, we had the pleasure of having Nick Crescenzo uh, joining us. And it was there that we talked about music, about life in general, about the band. And it was a great time. Great what time. What a wonderful guest. I, I really want to thank him for coming on. That was such a fun episode. Yeah, Absolutely. I almost feel like we're going to be we're missing a fourth host now. Like we got it Craig. Was just so so easy having him on. We do have Craig, yes, but he's he's more the strong silent type. So yeah. That's so true. as always, as always, you can find that on your preferred streaming platform, whatever that may be. But let's crack on. On today's episode, we're going to be talking about. The thing that kicked off the entire Deer Hunter saga, of course, it's Act 1. Act 1. So, uh, Hunter, why don't you start us off? Because I know you've done a lot of research on on uh, kind of how the whole album came to be. So why don't you give us some insight into that? Yes, I, I've done the very complicated level of uh, basic internet research. Uh, and, and a lot of the information came from... Uh, there's actually another a podcast on this, which um, I, I almost hate to drive people away here, but the Acts and Origins podcast that, that Casey did, kind of talking about each of his albums. Uh, it was abandoned eventually, but the Act 1 episode kind of provided some information that we didn't previously have about just how it came to be. Um, I, I think most people are familiar with like the misleading demos. Uh, basically, uh, Casey... Had this while he was still in the receiving air sirens, he had this idea for kind of a conceptual album. Well, partially conceptual, and he put out a demo, gave it to his friends. Uh, didn't really think anything of it, but Triple Crown Records approached him and basically said, um, "Hey, if you want to go ahead with this, we like it. You clearly like doing it. Let's let's move ahead." And he uh, he didn't quite do much with it until uh, his departure from receiving receiving air sirens, and um, then he kind of realized because a lot of those songs from misleading demos made it on to act two so in a sense he started from act two and he he felt as though that wasn't quite the the beginning he was looking for so he retroactively kind of uh, created this this origin story for the uh the eponymous character you know hunter not myself different hunter might be me 
Um, yeah, we just have, he never I said think the only so songs that didn't make it, it, it could onto be entirely act. about me. I'm not entirely sure. I think the only songs that didn't make it onto Act Two were uh, you have the Overture, you have Camera, and you have uh, An Epiphany and Satisfaction. I think the ones who didn't fold turned into another song. Um, uh, yes, that was Weather Road Parts. I don't know about economics, but yeah, a general chunk of it, like the big banger singles from Act Two, are on the Dear Misleading demo. Yeah, so in a, in a lot of ways, um, Act Two is is the spiritual beginning of not only the story itself, but of the the conception of you know the project of the band of the Deer Hunters. So Act One is um, is interesting in that it's it's the first release, but it's I think Casey even said himself it's almost like he had to start with a sophomore album, which I think is kind of an interesting take on it because most people kind of you know talk about how a band finds their own in their second album, so. Uh, in a sense, this is the second album. You also have Casey who like goes back and forth whether or not he calls it an EP or a full length. And I, I'm not quite as back and forth. I, I'm I'm pretty. It's 37 minutes long. I call it an album. I mean, I it, it's a bit of a controversial opinion. I know I put it out there in in the group a while back where I uh, I don't really consider Act One an album, and it's not an admonishment of it. You know, obviously it's. Um, conceptually necessary to kind of establish some of the overarching themes. Um, but it's just, to me, not only with the runtime, uh, you know, 37 minutes is just a little bit longer than we consider like a standard standard EP, but also just um, the flow of it and kind of the, the, the way the songs work together and the amount of time that passes throughout the album and the amount of time between Act 1 and Act 2, it feels more like a, a prelude EP to me than, than an album. I, I In my head, I consider Act 2 the, the first album. And that's not yeah. to, like I said, not to degrade Act 1. It's just I... It doesn't sit at the big boy table with the other acts in, in my no, mind. I, I see what you mean. It's definitely an outlier uh, out of the whole the acts series. It's definitely the outlier. But I also think that's kind of what makes it such a, a special beginning, you know? I don't call it's, it an outlier. Uh, oh, no. No? No, I disagree how, with that. How would, how, would you, how would you describe it then, Steve? All right, so... I had this argument with my friends. I, when I first really started getting into the band, I followed the band. I think if I said on episode zero that I've been following the band for quite a bit, but uh, I didn't really get into them until I started listening to Act Three. Then I actually went back to Two and One, and I felt they were pretty cohesively themed, like together with it. I think after Act Three I had that shift, but Act One kind of created that sound that he had. And we were talking about this um, band, this album called Every Trick in the Book by this band called Ice Nine Kills, which is a 10 song album clocking in about 33 minutes and this album at eight songs has a longer runtime yet a lot of people consider it too short of an album when it's actually longer than like a good chunk of the albums out there well it's not like an hour long like typically for a deer hunter in fact act three is the second shortest album that he's done it's just it's still like considered a full length just on that merit alone if you're talking about the definition of an lp versus an ep because then if you're going back for I mean, that you can go with um between the buried and me which did uh Parallax One, which was three songs clocking at 30 minutes. It's not necessarily just the the time, although I, I do think that kind of plays a part into it, it kind of feels like a very kind of short um, introduction, but it, it is kind of the, the way the story plays out as a prologue. Like it's it kind of like a lot of the other albums are jammed packed full of very minute details. The, the amount of time that passes within each album is pretty compressed, so it's a lot more of uh, stream, stream of consciousness thought kind of feelings uh, things events that are happening whereas act one is very blocky because it covers i mean probably 
13, 15 years from Hunter's birth up, up to uh, when Miss Terry dies. Well, um, I think she actually so died I, I, in the I beginning. I think it's just of the, the way the story is presented to kind of to me feels like once upon a time, and it's it, to me yeah. it feels it feels like Act Zero to me. It feels like okay, this is what we're going to be doing, and then it starts with the story at Act Two, which is kind of the point of point of time. Uh, it's it's pretty consistent from Act Two up till Act Five. Like the there's not these huge gaps in time or anything like that. Really, the only gap in time we have is between Act One and Act Two. Which yeah, because I would agree with. I think, sorry, I think. Yeah, I think Act One is is definitely it feels like it was more written, not necessarily as musical theatre, but definitely a kind of it's the most rock opera one out of all of the acts. I think, um, you know, Act Two through to Five are more of that kind of prog rock kind of style that we're used to. But I think Act One is just. It, it really takes that kind of stage show style to the extremes. Yeah, but the thing is, though, is that, like, I would agree with Hunter, except for the fact that it lays out a lot of the musical reprisals that do come back pretty frequently throughout the acts. Like, The Lake South is a musical interlude, which I, I think I texted to you. I, the way I listened to this album is more of, like, a uh, subjective perspective as opposed to being objective. But it kind of sounded like Hunter exploring the land of the lake and the river, which frequently pops back into his head throughout Acts two through five. So, hmm. well, the the Lake South theme pops up uh, a few more times. Um, it pops back up once more in Act one, and I think at the end of uh, Final Vessels Vindicates in Act two. And I mean, as far as when I've read on it and kind of how it comes across to me, it seems like more of just a, a transition. Like it's almost. It's it's a theme representing that something new is beginning for them. Like when it first comes up, I think that was Hunter being born because it's you know obviously starting off this new journey not only for Hunter. No, he was born before alive, that song. It, I I don't believe so. I mean I I think it's not really so solid as to what specifically happens in each song. But I I think I I think Lake South is is kind of Hunter's Hunter's birth or at least shortly thereafter after he was born. Like obviously the the transitioning from Miss Terry's life as just a sex worker to a mother. I think that song kind of represents it. Whether or not it was from him being born or him shortly after he was born, I think it represents that change. Oh, that's interesting. Well, I guess it's an agree to disagree thing then. Because when you, when you have it come up later in, in the albums, you know, Vital Vessels Vindicates, it plays when he's sailing off to war, so he's obviously leaving one frame of life to another, and then it comes up again in a beginning in Act 5, and that's, you know, even the lyric right before it is trust that with its end, new beginnings waiting patiently. So it's almost like the theme to me keeps coming up whenever there's these big life transitions hmm. well one thing I, well this album was actually was I know it, the Deer Misleading demos was originally like the first I guess work from the Deer Hunter even though it wasn't really an officially released thing um, but I, was uh, was this mixed and recorded with Triple Crown I know it was released with them but I think this was mixed and recorded in Casey's basement or something like that right well, I know Casey initially recorded Act One, uh, all all the instrumentals for it, and then completely lost it. And I'm pretty sure he said he was he had it recorded when he was still on tour with the receiving end of Sirens. So I think he was even kind of moving forward with it at that point. Um, and then he had a whole version of the album that got scrapped because the hard drive got corrupted. Oof. Which I I would love to hear that version. Oof. But after he came back to it, he added things like 1878. Um, he added, uh, I think the Lake South. He it wasn't there prior, so almost the losing that album you know made him reapproach it and, and add things that are 
pretty crucial to, I mean, 1878, most people consider one of the, the highlights of the album. I, I, it's really, I don't know, that's actually, I get a lot of hate for that, but that's one of my least favorite songs from the band. But What, what, what is it about it, that you don't... It just never clicked with me. It's one of those songs, like, it's like, there's some songs from the Deer Hunter. I remember <laughs> I was taking this human bionutrition class, and, um, and once a week we had lecture time, which was about a four-hour lecture. So it's pretty easy to lose your interest in those four hours. So there was a point in time where I was literally going through every act, like from the deer hunter with like the lyrics and like deciphering the story. Hmm. Cause I don't listen to lyrics when I listen to music. And a lot of songs clicked in the after, like I listened to the lyrics, like um, the bittersweet three embrace. That That's one of the ones that kind of clicked with me, but going to like going through this album, 1878 just never really shifted for me. I think, um, I'm pretty sure that Cityscape was always clicking with me, and same with Increment's Terry, and uh, his hands matched his tongue clicked with me later on. But surprisingly enough, the two most popular songs from the album actually really don't resonate with me too well, which is 1878 and his hands matched his tongue. I mean, that that kind of speaks to the the versatility of sound. You know, some people kind of because I mean the sound the sound for this album is kind of all over the place. Whereas like starting with Act Two, it's a bit more cohesive. I mean, although it does explore different genres, this one is kind of very here's this style of music here's this one here's this one i mean it's got a lot of jazz influence throughout but it's very mm. uh polar sometimes in, in the way that it approaches music so i think act one's kind of unique in that respect that you know depending on the type of music that you're into or what you're interested in at the time you know one song can stand out to you and another can kind of fall by the wayside i mean for fuck's sake i compared it to a metalcore album a few minutes ago so yeah there's uh it does have that but anyway let's get, in, yeah, let's get little- into the nitty and gritty what do you think Sure, yeah. So if you want to start us off. So let's see. Uh we were talking about how we wanted to break down this episode before this. Uh me and Hunter almost clawed each other's eyes out. So that's something that you guys I'm still, I'm still considering it, so So I uh I have an arm just reaching all the way out to Ohio, just waiting patiently. But yeah, the Yeah, I'm thinking about showing up to the New York show just to throw some hands. Oh, you better. And uh, then and then Rue, of course, is the, the arbiter in the middle. He's like, Hey guys, let's <laughs> Let's let's be like in in the SpongeBob episode, where he's like, let's be smart and come off. Come on, guys, or bring, bring it off. It's all about the, the balance. That's- it's all about the balance. <laughs> Gotta work the balance. So the um yeah, so I wanted to kind of let, we were talking about like breaking this up a bit. Uh, the first thing I just wanted to mention before we go directly into the song meanings is uh, I was listening to this album again for the first time. It was, it's been a couple months since I really analytically listened to this album. Usually, if I play the Deer Hunter in the modern time, it's just like when I'm driving or doing something and I don't really listen analytically, but today I busted out the good headphones and my God, I think the production of this album, it's, it doesn't sound as refined as like a lot of other things came out around 2006. Cause that's when it came out 2006, like 2005, 2006, you had like some really massive sounding albums and this was way more intimate of a sound. Uh, but even like if you're talking about just the production and performances behind it, it's all really passionate. And I'm pretty sure that all the instruments on this, are all fully um they're all like fully performed they're not midi or anything like all the brass yeah, I mean, and woodwinds to, to, and everything to my ear i don't i don't notice any sort of um like artificial sound or anything at all it all sound i mean having kind of a background in uh large orchestras and stuff to me to me it all sounds pretty legitimately performed although i i do kind of like that some of the instrumentals like the the trombone and the oboe and the french horn the oboe they, um, the fucking oboe they I know the oboe always comes back up, but they, they almost sound not like an amateur plays them, but they don't, they don't sound like a, a lot of like really 
well-defined players put like a lot of vibrato especially on like uh brass instruments and it to me it sounds very kind of bare and i i, I like just the the production style and the the performance level of of the instruments i think it's pretty raw compared to what they could have done which is kind of a lot of embellishment a lot of vibrato a lot of kind of uh, uh cresting and, and falling you know it's it's very kind of straightforward and I, I think it fits really well with like the whole production of the album which like you said is is pretty raw yeah and the i, I noticed uh you can kind of tell too that casey came from more rock oriented like recent history when this album was made because that's the way it kind of feels it feels like a rock album it doesn't feel as you know disney and wooshy feeling as the later stuff this feels pretty in your face despite it being intimate like when he chooses it to be and casey a lot of times he uses it to his benefit when giving the narratives of the album when it goes from him narrating the characters and what's happening to straight from the characters perspectives of what's going on and another thing i noticed this album listening back is oh my god the lyrics are really these lyrics are really punctual and impactful and strong. Like this is, this is one of those albums that like, I'm not huge on using profanity in my lyrics. Like when I write stuff, but with this, this is kind of like a strong case for not using it because Casey is just like so deliberate with his words as like a poet would be. Yeah. I, I noticed the lyrics and I, I think that almost plays to my earlier point about how, how condensed some of the story elements feel here like it's it's a very direct interpretation of exactly what a person's experiencing uh and it's especially in the case of mystery who's hmm. mystery mystery i'm just gonna say mystery uh, people can get mad at me for it it just sounds weird to say mystery like i know that's it's supposed to be a phoneme for that but um when i first read yeah. misleading like on the act two title I'm like you got to be fucking kidding me casey yeah, it's it's a little on the nose, but I I also think just thematically it kind of fits because it, it is I mean a lot of like the old um, operas and and orchestral pieces and and musicals are are a little bit cheesy and kind of the way they uh, throw themes out there. Um, so I I think it kind of fits with that element pretty nicely. But when it comes to like mm-hmm. uh, him him kind of representing what uh, Miss Terry was feeling not only with Hunter and kind of with the job that she had previously had, I think it's a pretty like you said very heavy kind of interpretation of it whereas like with the other albums it's a little more subtle because it has time to build exactly what's happening in the moment this one is like okay we got a lot of stuff to get out of the way this is what she was going through it was dark we're gonna we're gonna set it up and move past it i mean yeah you have my favorite sonic cover cityscape which uh it's pretty avant-garde cover that song but it's like the most in your face the deer hunter song i think i've heard like aside from inquata on uh act three yeah, I noticed Act One kind of set up a template that's utilized a lot through the the later albums, where it kind of starts out with the introduction, usually you know acapella, and then like it's it kind of builds a little bit uh, past that, like a softer track, and then it hits you with what I call like a fanfare track, which in this case the is City Escape. Yeah, uh, it's mm. it's in Cod of Venom on Act Three. It's you know you can you can hear this this structure keep coming back where it starts out kind of soft acapella intro. Then it hits you with that thing I call the fanfare track, and then kind of it has a, a softer song toward the end, but not quite at the end. Like it, you, you can see this template getting set up that he he sticks to his sandwich, and I, I kind of admire that. He he likes using the uh, the lovely in your face pumpernickel to start off, and then ends it with some multi grain wheat. <laughs> I I guess <laughs> we're 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 an entirely bread based podcast now. 
<laughs> oh my god, it's all Craig giving me these. No, notes. I just I think if you compare Act One and Act Two, uh, compare the structure of the way the songs are set up and the type yeah. of songs that are set up where they are, you can see a lot of similarities. Like Act Act Two mm -hmm. is almost just like a lengthened version of Act One. But since we're talking about um, the songs, I guess want to get right into it. Yeah. So absolutely. the album starts with a title I'm about to butcher horrendously because I am a guy with a New York accent and I cannot read a, uh, Latin. Uh, Batissimo del Fuoco. Believe you me, the price is clear. A child born. Does that sound around, uh, right to you guys? Oh, you even, you even tried to throw a little bit of uh, embellishment there at the end. I like it. Hmm. It's probably, it's, from, it's probably from those language classes that I took that never fucking resonated with me. Anyway. Yes, and this translates uh, to, to baptism of fire, which ba I, yes, I definitely know of because of my extensive knowledge of, of Latin. Which actually yes. uh, is funny. That actually, the title of this song uh, influenced this other crappy song I did called Baptism of Earth. I, uh, I drew direct inspiration from this because I just thought that like the idea of baptizing someone and, and I know baptism of fire is an actual term but the idea of baptizing someone in an actual element is just really like prosaic and primitive but still like very poetic at the same time hmm so yeah no I, I get that anyway so it starts now off this um, I guess we could just read the lyrics to this song because uh, this is a really short song it's not a re it's just the intro it is, but we I can honestly do a whole episode on this this song and tie it to the, the, the comics. So go ahead and get the lyrics out of the way, and then I, I've got some stuff coming out of the gate. All right, so this song starts off, um, it sounds from my perspective, again, I, the way I intended to go about this is I wanted to keep this entirely subjective, since you have the objectivity between Hunter's knowledge of the band and Rue's knowledge of the uh, musical motifs and the reprisals. I wanted to keep this more objective from my perspective. Um, starting off with, Believe you me, the price is clear, a child born, the mother near, to death and life as hand in hand, a failed life exposed in the man who led her off into the flame to cast her back to hell again. So with this, it feels like an actual poem, like just that first little verse. Um, it's a lot of just kind of, it's a lot of Casey basically just setting the stage. This child was just born with, her, with the mother being nearby and in nature in the most kind of natural way possible and he goes in to say but hear you me uh, hear you me the break of the dawn the break of dawn will wash away the sins thereof unto the lake beyond the tree the child waits alone is he finding out the child is a boy well, just and you find out that just re sorry real quick for clarification's sake um when when hunter was born he was born in the dime so they weren't in nature yet when he was born because when she escaped with him that this kind of pulls from the comic a little bit she had to escape with him as a baby so it, it does kind of expresses his his birth, but it didn't happen in in like nature and isolated. It happened in this this brothel. See, it it sounds that see. I read the comic once because that comic I think it was like thirty bucks when I bought it, the reprint, and I just kept it sealed ever since. So, um, but that's that's just considering that the lyrical, the lyrical format to this it sounds more like it's supposed to be more holistic. But um, yeah, and I I kind of mentioned mm -hmm. to you earlier that there there are some inconsistencies between act one and and the comic that are that are pretty not only act one in the comic but kind of act one in the comic and then some of the things casey said about the story don't line up the way they should and i'll, I'll let you finish the lyrics before i go into that because like i said this this song could we can have a whole episode on this song because it's very dense yeah i know actually thinking about that because like the way i write lyrics and um i don't want to throw this back on me but this is my way of kind of i guess i could connect a bit with casey as a lyricist is like 
when I write lyrics, I usually listen to the song or if I'm writing it, I kind of have the music in my head and I write down line by line and let it go from there. I rarely go about it with saying this is the objective I want to say during the song and then turns into meaning something. And then when I show it to a fan or whoever who to listen to it, I say, they, they ask me like what something means. I will answer it and say, you got this correct or you didn't get this correct. But largely I'll leave it up to their interpretation. I feel like that's a big part of what Casey does with his, uh, position in the deer hunter is that a fan could guess something but he won't give it to them and he will rarely even tell them they're right or wrong he'll just leave it up to the abstract interpretation outside of like the objective perspective of the linear storyline that exists hmm. if that makes sense but at the Kinda, end of, yeah at the end of this lyric um he goes he just repeats the flame is gone the fire remains and if you're a fan of this band you know how strong of a line that is for the out for the discography or in the sense i mean the discography but for the acts because the discography is be, is more than that but um when he says that i've seen a lot of people try to interpret what it means and i kind of want to get your guys interpretation of it too uh what you guys what you guys think the term the flame is gone the fire remains means and for anyone listening uh please leave a comment wherever you post this and let us know what you think it means and we'll be glad to interact with you about it but well, I if I if I could start out here again because I am just brimming with things to say about this particular song. <laughs> uh, I, I think it's a very versatile lyric in, in the way that it's kind of it's used in different ways. I once saw an interesting interpretation, and I I don't in any way think this is true, but I, just, I love that someone came up with a theory for it. They uh, they kind of associated it with Miss um, Terry having a uh, degenerative disease, whether um, you know, the implication being maybe it was sexually transmitted because of her profession or something like that, but she had some sort of disease that. Um, was passed on to Hunter at at some point. Like the whole breakdown of it, I can't remember where I found it, but it was it was just cool to see someone's take on it like that. Uh, I I personally think it's it's uh, it's the main theme of the acts. Flames gone fire remains because it it kind of uh, you know the stories about him, not only him but all the other characters just getting beat down. It's a very dark and and kind of not very optimistic story. So it's it's one of those things where it's like, uh, I mean, if you had to boil it down to like a, a life lesson, it's that shit is gonna happen. Uh, and and you gotta you gotta keep going afterward. You know whether it's something terrible like someone dying or it's just something min- minorly inconvenient. Like if you have a cough, like once, and keep muting your mic every thirty seconds. <laughs> like if you're on Act One or the the Episode One, yes. Uh, but it's I, I don't know. It's 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 used in a lot of different ways, and I think it's just a very versatile lyric in that sense. So pinning it down to one specific meaning, I think, is a little difficult. Uh, but Rue, what's what's your take on it? Because I. I have so much to say about the song. I don't want to take up the whole episode just screaming into the mic about it. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you in that it it is such a versatile lyric, like you said. Um, I think in in the context of this song, it's it's kind of implying that Hunter is the fire, and his mother, Mystery Mystery, uh, is the flame, and it's. It's this idea of she's kind of setting off this spark that is gonna it's gonna lead to Hunter's life being kind of like a fire just devouring everything that comes comes to him. Um yeah, I really I really like and, that. and he's and he obviously had no control, you know, over becoming this and in that sense I think it's so it, it it makes the story just a whole lot more heartbreaking when you know that Hunter was just, you know, born into this life, 
and had no choice over the circumstances um you know yeah yeah i I think that interpretation kind of jives with um the act one comic which in and of itself is a very confusing read that we'll we'll get into at some point i mean it just looks gorgeous bob did a good job with the art and before I get angry, I don't think before Bob, I get angry didn't, hate, Bob didn't do um, the art for this one. Oh, well, he did for Act 2, and I know the Act 2 one is gorgeous. He did for Act 2. This one was uh, Evan Peter did the pencils, and then Joel Guell did the, the colors. But I just want to say before I get hate, uh, the title the title of the song is Italian, not Latin, and I am so sorry for anyone that is seething at the teeth on my error. So, oh, jeez, I said Latin, too. <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry. It's, it's Craig's fault. Craig did bad research beforehand. It's, oh, it's Craig. Yeah. Um... Yeah, on page seven of, of the comic, I, f- I feel like I'm... Oh, I'm, you're thumbing right through it. it, Jesus. I got it right here. I told you, I'm ready to go, but I, f- I feel like I'm leading like a sermon. Like, if you'll turn to page seven in your Dear Hunter Bible. But anyway, in, uh, in page seven here, it kind of... Um, it has this... A lot of time passing when they first get to the, the lake and the river, and it's Miss Terry talking about uh, he walked before he talked. He saw this world for something. It was something it could be. And then the next panel actually has a different point of view it's it the the panel turns yellow instead purple and it says she taught me the most important things about family living love and then uh, later on miss miss terry talks about how she was kind of raising hunter to treat his leading lady um in in the way that she should be that actually goes into the next song so yeah when it comes to like rue's interpretation of how she she started this fire that would that not only affect hunter in such a drastic way but i mean the the story is is large so a lot of the things the hunter did affected a lot of people so it's almost like what Ru said you know she was the flame uh that that started that fire and even once she was gone it was it was still going to burn but that that page is really confusing in the sense that we'll, we'll get into this later but there's a whole time travel element to the story that's not explained and it's very confusing and not only that perspective change but a lot of the things in the act one comic are just very cryptic and confusing uh, but as far as the the flame has gone fire remains interpretation i, I like Ru's a little bit better I like it. I, I just you. consider it as simply like the flame being the current circumstance might be fucked, and I think it's kind of alluding to uh, to slight spoiler. Um, Ms. Terry, uh, she leaves the um, the dime, which is the brothel. But the flame, I think, is referring to in this situation that circumstance that being gone. The fire remains, being that her burning passion lives on. That's that's the way I perceived it. I think that whatever might be gone, whatever you either you're working on or something that's gone. Like if you lose a, a family member, the family member itself might be gone, but the fire, their legacy remains. Well, I also think it ties back to uh, our our titular lyric here, which is the the dear apparition type thing. the The word apparition pops up a lot throughout the acts, and I think it kind of plays in a similar role. Because um, I I don't, it, it's tough to say whether or not the apparitions are actual spirits or ghosts to any degree because although Casey said there's no supernatural elements to the story there's clearly several um, but I, I think it's more just like what you were saying about how um, something from your past, an interest uh, an event, a passion uh, is, is almost like a, a phantom of your former self that you keep kind of conjuring up as you recontextualize the world, the world around you so this, this dear apparition thing could be literally he's seeing an apparition or it could be you know those phantoms of his, of his former self or, or like you were saying the, the flame that that persists i see mm-hmm. actually i'm reading pers- I'm, I'm on uh i'm on gene i just have genius up for the lyrics just so i can click through the songs easily as we're going through it um i see a lot of people are taking this very much at face value which is neither a bad or a good thing it's just your perspective um but i see people referring to the flame as the mother who left the offspring and uh the f- and she's being a flame such as herself who is a meekly fire so she's not what she once was 
I see that perspective popping up, which is interesting, but I think that's way too much on the nose for what Casey was going for. But um, before we go into the next song, I just want to talk quickly about the presentation of this song. Um, it's done in, as Hunter said, in acapella format, like most of the other intros, aside from aside from Act 2 and 5. Act 3 technically doesn't have an acapella intro, but um, it actually comes... It, they have an acapella alternative like version of it in the yeah. special edition, in the bonus tracks. Yeah, Writing on the Wall has, has an acapella version. Yeah, so, but with this, um, it starts off... I think this is a stellar way to open an album. There's like some... There's some album openers that that I think are just kind of like really perfect for what's being set. Like, um, for example, for Pink Floyd, for The Wall, you have In the Flesh, which is such a perfect like rock way of doing this. But Casey took this for a way more intimate approach. Mm-hmm. It's just him singing this in a way which is what presented me kind of like a pastor giving birth to a child. and um, Or like, you know, sanctifying the birth of a child. And him harmonizing with himself, making this really kind of intimate which leads right into um, the was it the Lake South is the next track, which, yeah, which leads right into the Lake South, which is more well, of the kind real, of infant. Before we move on to Lake South, I'm not moving on to it. I'm just saying more. the tie to it. Oh, okay. Where it moves on to the um, to the more intimate piano playing of it with the uh, tuba and stuff. This is like kind of Casey's way of just building the atmosphere for the listener to take the listener in under his like his cozy wing and into the throw him into this fucked up world of the the land of the city and whatever have you with hunter's beginning of his life because this album was made but this album was made after the concept of act two was written so casey knows what's going to happen so he kind of just takes it back to this and kind of is giving more fleshed out background before the album comes in well, and that's that's why this song is so unique in the discography. And in, in, in a sense, it's it's a huge, almost one of the, the biggest songs as far as lore goes, because it, it touches on not only the the things of Act One and Act Two, but it goes all the way to Act Three and Act Five. Like there's, uh, mm-hmm. I mean, it's kind of a loose interpretation to Act Three, where it talks about the death and life, and you know, of course, Act Three being called life and death, and kind of having that overall theme. I feel like, uh, you know, the it talks about. I mean, Casey's even said, you know, that this song is about act five in a sense like the the way that hunter's life ends the way he leads misleading to her death to be baptized into fire uh, and then also a very very subtle thing that someone on reddit who's obviously a genius with a with a great ear found that in the very background of this track so subtle mm-hmm. you can't even hear it is breathe in breathe out which is from yes. act two so i mean this this one what song you said in the chorus right uh in I don't. It comes up two times in in this song in particular. I'm gonna keep. I'm gonna try to avoid saying the name of the song so I don't butcher it. But the first song in Act One has this "Breathe In, Breathe Out" twice in it, and it's so subtle that you can only hear it if you like augment the music. That's so weird because I you told me about that beforehand and I actually listened for it. And I listened on some mastering headphones that I use and like mastering headphones are meant so you can hear every minutia, the littlest crackle and pops in a song. And I didn't hear that. Well, I started to feel like a conspiracy theorist digging into this because I mean, this this is Casey setting up such a dense story and things are so meticulously placed that they're not even there for the listener. It's almost like like um, when you watch like a ghost show and they have those EVPs. Or at, is that what they're called? Yeah, EVPs, where it's the they kind of like have this crackling that they can discern a, a ghastly voice from. This is almost like that. Like it's so subtle, and you have to to change the music so much to hear it that it's almost like a ghost talking. Which I would say is maybe just maybe it's too low in the mix. But with Casey so meticulously 
choosing what goes in music where. I almost feel like maybe that's what it's representing in a sense. He was also mm. this is also keep in mind that like the very he's very green when he made the song, you know? He's very new at this. So it could have I just, mean for for someone wet behind the ears, I mean this is a, a tremendous beginning to a musical career. I mean, I know it's not quite his beginning because he was in Receiving of Sirens, but this is his you know, his opus. This is his his swan song. Or not swan song, but his his beginning. It's the opening for yeah. his mental playground. That's basically what it was, the way I see it. So it's, this song in particular, it, it's not only uh, pre- premeditated in the sense that it touches on almost all the other acts and how the story's going to end, but it's just, it's so it's got so many subtle little things in it, like the, the connection to Act 2, and then it talks directly about what's going to happen in Act 5. So he almost formed this whole story right here in the song. It's almost like reading the back of a book. This This song is like reading the synopsis of a story in the back of a book. So it's really just interesting the way it was made and how it connects to everything else i feel like this was a fun mm-hmm. song to make too like just by doing all the harmonies and everything it must have been like really fun sitting and doing all that yeah definitely and i, I know a lot of these acapella things i think some people have interpreted them that as being the the oracles um and i, I think that may be the case because although casey says there's no mystical elements in the story like i said obviously there is because this is the beginning of the story um, and it's, it's talking about what's going to happen in the future. That happens several times. Every time the oracles are brought up, they tell Hunter premonitions. Um, and then there's this time travel element in the comic that I feel like we could probably shelf a little bit, but it does kind of tie into this. Where in the, in the comic, there's clearly a time-traveling Hunter. I don't know to what degree time travels, if it's more of a, you know, uh, maybe Dude, giving, being given a second chance in the that, afterlife or but, something, trying to right some of his wrongs, but he's, he's definitely Hunter as a person in the future talking to his younger self. That's interesting. But anyway, we could probably move on to Lake South now. I, I would love to sit here and talk about the song the whole time, but uh, I'm, I'm wrapping up. I'm listening to the song in the background, basically while we're doing this, cause I'm just trying to get like a very, like, I'm, it's basically the equivalent of Hunter thumbing through the comic as he's talking about this. Um, mm. I don't know if you hear this route too, but the harmonies kind of, I guess they're a testament to Casey's skill. Cause I know Casey doesn't like using pitch correction or any sort of it whatsoever. Um, but the harmonies sound really, really perfect. And if that's not pitch correction, then that's just really, really well done then. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Does that sound like pitch correction to you or just like really good musicianship? Yeah, I, I would say the latter, to be honest. Uh, I feel like with pitch correction, uh, especially if, if it's being done on every track, it will... It will not every track, just this one for the harmonies, because the harmonies sound really perfect with each other. Yeah, but I mean, on, on each individual recording of, oh, of, gotcha. of a of a harmony track, mm-hmm. I feel like you can overdo it uh, to such an extent that you're gonna drain the soul out of it, and that that's that's not really an issue that you get with this. So I'm inclined to think that it's all done uh, naturally. Okay. I think that wraps up um, our Battissimo del Fuoco. Ba- del, yeah, del, but I think del it does start kind of a separate conversation about the, the overall production of the album. Because we kind of touched on it a little bit earlier about how it's very stripped down. But there's there's a lot of elements that I, I think are kind of important to know. Because there's, there's almost times where it's deliberately kind of undermixed, in my opinion. Like, the, the, the most noticeable one is The Inquiry of Miss Terry. Well, we'll um, get into, I guess we'll get into that when we get there because I just want to try and get get through uh, the lake and the river first because we're getting through. Sure, we we can go in sequential. Yeah, because uh, that's what you that's what you wanted, Mister Clawing My Eyes. I know, out. and now I'm switching. We're, we're kind of switching sides here. This is crazy. Fucking and Rue's still sitting in the middle, just being a fence sitter. It's all yes, about the I'm balance. Being the uh, the mediator. It's all about the balance. 
Um, so Lake South, um, I, I said to you guys my perspective of it. I sent in the chat, um, basically saying that the, I thought the Lake South was more of like um, I thought Lake South was more of kind of the exploration of nature, um, kind of seeing kind of seeing that there's more to it. And as Hunter said, it is like a transitional piece. I think it's just kind of more world building, and it lays down a lot of the musical elements that will be used as reprisals later on in the later acts. But as it stands on its own, I think having it go straight from Batesimo straight to um, the city escape is would be jarring. So I think it was smart of Casey to throw the Lake South in the middle there. I don't, I don't know how many musicals you guys have been to or been involved in. I've I've been involved in several, and it's it's a very mm-hmm. common practice in musicals where when you need to do a uh, a stage like a set transition where yeah, you go from yeah, one yeah. set to another, you have the the house band like the pit play some sort of interlude that kind of fills the gap between going from one set to another like literally changing the physical props and this to me is kind of what that is like it's yeah um, it's basically saying okay it's the curtain going down then moving everything in the background and this is the house band kind of building the overall theme of okay we're moving to something different now that that's kind of how yeah. i interpret it and that, especially because it happens before they leave the city yeah and that's even supported by a lyric i, I mean we're jumping ahead a little bit but in city escape it literally says places people the stage is set yeah so, yeah i think that was a, it was a really on the nose that he did that like it's it's yeah. it's almost like endearing how kind of he's just saying okay literally we have the people set up we're setting up the people we're setting up the stage this is the the beginning of a, of a big thing see the way yeah. i perceived it was because i've been to a few musicals like out on like broadway and as well as like local stuff so it's, it varies depending on the musical and even the way Tarantino did it for uh, Hateful Eight, I view um, I view the Lake South as an extension of uh, Batesimo, and I view it as like a um, I view it as like an extended overture. And when the overture is done, then the curtains lift up and go straight into City Escape. That's that's the way I perceive it. Yeah, I think we're kind of, we're almost in line there as far as like it's it's the curtain opening. Yeah, like I, I'm thinking of it purely mm. from a musical standpoint, which is during the prologue, a person may actually come out and say, you know, oh, it was a tragic tale of woe or or something dramatic Shakespearean, and then you have the curtain opening and then the show starting. To me, that's what these first two tracks are: is someone saying, okay, here's what the story is about. It's a, it's a tale of triumph and tragedy, of love and loss, and then it's the house band playing as the curtains open. Yeah, like for someone who doesn't like musicals, Casey really follows the format of musicals really meticulously, like almost interestingly. So I'm not saying he's lying about not liking musicals, but clearly he either just has some sort of unconscious knowledge of them, or he's kind of structuring it in the same way. Because that's and we're not pulling that out of our ass. Nick said that on the last episode. His brother said that Casey doesn't like musicals. So and Casey said it himself before. So I mean, he's I don't like musicals either. So I, I give props to Casey for that. The information is doubled down that Casey is not a fan of musicals. And he even said in the Act 1, the or- Acts and Origins podcast, he basically said, like, I don't know anything about musicals. See, I, the, his, co- his co-host, Alex, was the musical fan. So this, it's really interesting that he, had, he follows a very traditional um, kind of musical format, setting it up immediately in Act 1. I view this more like, I don't know, I, I just view it as he took inspiration from other rock operas. That's, that's the way I see it. Uh, and those might have drawn inspiration from musicals so subsequently Casey could have drawn from musicals but I think it was more from other rock operas that he kind of like put his stuff together plus growing up in a house with like a musical mm-hmm. family you know it's like you're bound to have that infect you in some way or another yeah absolutely 
Yeah, I think it's it's probably just a like a, a, a permeation into into his mind, just because these these overall kind of structures of things. I think it's interesting that you, you mentioned earlier you're mentioning now rock operas, and you mentioned uh, Pink Floyd's The Wall. Yeah. Another thing Casey said he doesn't like is Pink Floyd. He's not just not a big Pink Floyd fan. Well, hasn't I know really that to him, Nick, hasn't taken influence from him. Nick said when I spoke to him uh, at the All Is All Should Be tour in New York, um, he said that like he said that Migrant was very Pink Floydy, and like. Uh, and I found that really interesting because um, because that's what I thought. I thought they didn't like it, so that's why I just kind of made my assumption with that. And uh, the reason I the reason I said Pink Floyd is because I didn't want to reference the other albums that I was thinking about. But um, it the reason why reason why I mentioned Pink Floyd was not in relation to this, but I think that In the Flesh is a really phenomenal way to open up an album. Right, and the thing about In the Flesh is that it ties. I mean, th- this is how I'm drawing it to Deer Hunter. Uh, if you if you listen to the last track on the wall the very last line is isn't this and then the very first line of in the flesh is where we came in so it's kind of establishing this cyclical nature like by the time he tears down his wall he starts rebuilding it right up again and this kind of is the same thing the opening track uh, Batissimo it's basically saying look here's here's what already happened and it goes in the lake south and then you have act five ending with the lake south and basically uh, you have this time travel element and stuff. It really seems like he's setting up the same kind of circular structure and doing it in a similar way that Pink Floyd did. So I, I think also that might be a, a subtle influence. Maybe he didn't even necessarily know we had, but it's very similar in the sense that Act 5 almost ends where Act 1 begins. Yeah. Well, I guess mm. that covers that and the Lake South because we've been on this for like 30 minutes already. I know. I didn't know there was going to be so much to talk about this album. Yeah, that's why I was against the uh, track by track format, but we're already sticking to it. So, um, what I know, what might happen, we might break this into uh, multiple episodes if it gets too long. Just because I know firsthand that sitting through about three hours of a podcast can be a little strenuous. Sure. Like, well, we we've gotten a lot of the the bulk out of the way, which is the beginning of this, and kind of talking about how it plays into the albums. This is really from here. It's just talking about how the other tracks play into this kind of block of the story like what happens how the songs play out so i guess let's just move right on to to city escape since we already kind of talked about the lake south yeah and if you guys if you guys like the um you as the listeners if you enjoyed this format or if you'd rather us talk about more of the album collectively as like one piece uh let us know like you're feel free to just literally reach out to us at the end we plug all our socials and everything tell us what you thought tell us if you have any whatever mm-hmm. feedback criticisms or compliments or whatever you want to throw at us and uh, yeah, I mean that's why we're holding off on the Act Two episode instead of doing both in one go, is for you beautiful people. So, anyway, on to City Escape. Directly straight into it, one of my f- all-time favorite the Deer Hunter songs because. When I was listening to this song um, again this morning, my God, Casey's lyricism and vocal abilities are insane. The drums here just outline everything perfectly. They just hold it all together and what otherwise would be a madhouse. And the keys just do so much complimenting like as accents. Mm. Um, just like musically speaking from that point. And uh, Casey on vocals... I hear he's going back and forth a lot between like the really grand, the big reverb and everything. And then he goes straight for intimacy, which was, um, I'm just trying to find it, where it says, oh, but the breath escapes her, that part, I believe. Oh, but her breath escapes her. Oh, but the 
um, where he gets very, very intimate. And then he starts bringing it back up, back up, back up into like the full grandiose nature of this song, which is such as a gorgeous, fun song. And that's kind of like mm-hmm. what I loved when I first heard this album is when I heard Batesimo and I heard him say the flames gone, the fire remains being someone that started off in act three and then went to act one afterwards, basically I started in the middle of the story and then went backwards. But um, hearing those things come back, it kind of gave me a bit more of a deeper appreciation, especially ever since I heard uh, Casey when he was on uh, Kevin Pereira's podcast saying how uh, everything was connected with musical reprisals throughout and me starting off so early. I didn't hear a lot of that, not having four and five under my belt yet. But this like definitely shows off the dichotomy of Casey's writing where with going very soft and beautiful to straight in your face and aggressive. Yeah, and it's pretty uh, representative of the actions that are taking place. Like, um, City Escape starts out very chaotic and frenetic, and then as the whole, her breath escapes her, her heart remains, uh, I, I picture that almost, and I feel like the comic supports this to a degree, that's almost like her clutching, she's taking a breath because she's been running this whole time trying to escape, and she's clutching Hunter to her chest, and from his point of view, even though he's a baby, he can hear her breath, it's... it's it's heavy, she's she's worn out, she's exhausted, and then her heart's just beating fast. Like those are the two sensory things that Hunter would pick up on as she was like clutching him. And it, it kinda sounds like these interpretations are too deep, but when it comes to Casey, you really can't tell. Like he does everything so meticulously that I feel like it, it probably is representative of something like that, because it really calms down. It's her catching her breath. There's so many textures too. I'm like listening back to it now, and you just hear like just so many there's just fuzz in the background. And I, I mentioned this too. The piano also reminds me of, because um, like this lines with what Hunter's saying. The piano even like it kind of reminds me, <laughs> bad example, but a bit of the Flesh God Apocalypse style of because like Flesh God Apocalypse are very very chaotic, and this has some of that element in here too, kind of showing that. And as Hunter says, mm-hmm. when it slows down, it's her catching her breath more. And it's just yeah, and I, I honestly think like it's a, a visual representation of her clutching Hunter to her, and he's sensing the the breath in her heart, and I think that's just a really great storytelling he's so great on the story i mean you could say the story takes back or the music takes backseat to the story but they're so closely intertwined that you know i i've personally never heard such a sprawling soundscape of like a concept album that is so meticulous in the way it tells its story like it's it's just Hmm. i it's it's brilliant i mean it really is like someone has to be have something special going on in their brain to be able to plan all this out so meticulously where you can come back to it like we're doing now, talking about things. I'm, I'm realizing stuff. I've heard this album a million times. I didn't even think about. So it's just, it's such a well-formulated form, album. Yeah, and mm. just talking on the scope of Cityscape, uh, we should probably start going into the plot of this, I feel like. Because we talked about... Yeah, definitely. We spoke about how it meant. Um, Rue, what, what does this song mean to you? Uh, so this song is all about the chaos of... Of leaving the city. Um, much like Sonic. Much like Sonic, yes. I, I do prefer this one to the uh, to the Sonic City Escape. But only Ooh. just. Only just. <laughs> only just. So, yeah, I mean, I'm not so well read on Act 1, I will admit. It's probably the album that I listen to the least um, out of the acts. But... Uh, that that being said, I do I do have a an appreciation and a basic understanding of the story. Um, so yeah, th- this album is uh, this song. Sorry, like I said, it's all about the chaos of escaping a city. Um, let's see. 
retrieve these lyrics. The yeah, I guess while Rue's doing that, um, it's a, it starts off straight with "Please, what happened to the flame?" We're going right off the last lyric, which is "The flame is gone, the fire remains," which does have that on the nose approach in this perspective of what happened to Miss Terry, with uh, the flame being gone. Because it goes straight, please, what happened to the flame? It burned down at the sides with the fondness for cooking history, revealing the thoughts of mystery. Mystery slash, he pronounced it mystery, but it's Miss Terry in the lyrics. And I, I know. I that's wish why I had the so CDs right weird. next to me. But the the whole fire thing, I mean, when you when you kind of tie it in with the, the comic book as well, she literally set fire to the dime. So she's she's mm. literally setting fire to history. Her history, yeah, not yet, dime, but she's, it's, it's coming. When actually I first heard when I first heard this album, this, this is like when I really knew nothing about the plot. I was trying to understand the plot of Act Three without knowing everything else. It's kind of like trying to understand the middle of a film without having any of the exposition going on, or the mm-hmm. end without the ending being there, so you make out things in context. Because this is like this is kind of hard if you're reading just the, just the lyrics. It's really hard to make out what he's trying to say. You have to listen to the lyrics alongside with the way he delivers it and the musical right uh, instrumentation behind it, but. Yeah, which it all plays together so well. Like I said, it's just it's ridiculous how inter- how much interplay there is here. And even with the uh, with the refrain, which is the um, for the chorus, it's like holy shit, the lyricism here, plagued by practical with a mercenary lust, they tear at her skin. Oh, the trouble began, but it never ended. Clawing at her throat with the smell of desperate and lack of regret. Oh, let, oh, the trouble began, but it never ended. It's Jesus, man. That paired with the delivery, because Casey, like, one thing I love about this song is even when the song just slows down, like, in right after the chaotic intro, when the verse is just simple drum, like, percussion and, like, simple guitars, Casey's still belting it. Hmm. Like, he's just going straight up, like, rock up, just jump right in there and kind of get in your face. And then he even kind of reorders the first verse with the second one, where she says, free pardon by the flame that burned down the sides, showing that, um past tense now it's just the way he's approaching the lyricism in this just may like remind me why he's one of my favorite vocalists and lyricists because of the way he approached all these things yeah the, this this song i think captures really like, like i said act one's kind of unique in the respect that it, it really spells out what i mean it, like you said it's a little bit vague when you don't know the story but once you know the story and you kind of connect it you're like oh shit this is really like he's not just saying this whole thing happened. He's talking specifically the event that happened, kind of outlining it step by step, almost like you're watching mm. a movie. So th- this song is really the first uh, introduction we get into this this universe, like into the story that's happening. Which is basically, I mean, for the people who don't know, Miss Terry was a, a prostitute uh, who worked at a place called the Dime, um, which we'll, we'll get into with later songs. But just kind of a brief rundown: the Dime doubles as a church. Uh, so the church and the Dime is saying by day it's a place of worship, by night it's a brothel. And Miss Terry was a prostitute there, and she had a baby and set fire to the place and escaped because she wanted a new life for a kid. She ended up finding a, a house in the middle of the woods or the, the forest uh, by a lake. Uh, they, they lived there. They grew up together before she ended up going back to the brothel. It's a bit unclear as to why, and I think we can probably approach that a little bit more with a later song. Um, but basically, this whole first act is setting up the story of how Hunter came to be. You know, he was, he was born through... Uh, this the sex work she was doing presumably and then she wanted a better life for him and she escaped so you have this kind of central figure called uh, the pimp of the priest who is, runs both the church and the brothel and he's uh you know just a very uh malicious character he's he's trying to get her to come back he's trying to get her not to leave and he's he's got a lot of plates spinning he's just got everything in control i don't think he's here yet 
This well, he comes in in a. I, I was just getting a brief overview of what because it doesn't seem like if we go song by song that we will get a full picture of the story. So I just want to give a brief okay. overview of what this whole album was about, and then as we go song by song, we'll talk about the particular elements. Yeah, because hmm. one thing about these acts is um, if you listen to them, because now you have the opportunity of listening to them all together, you can get the full story. Like you can, yeah. you finally don't have you don't have to wait like the two years or one year or whatever for each act to come out. We know the full story and anything beyond that. Like Casey even said that he wanted to do Act Six. That's just icing on the cake, right? Which is an epilogue. So at, so far we're up to City Escape, which is the part of the story where she is escaping from the town. She comes across this this meadow, this peaceful place where she decides to live with him, and then we go into the inquiry, Miss Terry. <laughs> which is our next song here if you guys want to talk about that a little bit and we'll talk about how the how that kind of t- ties into the story i don't think she did she burn down the brothel yet she caught it on fire in city escape okay like the very hmm. the very beginning of city escape is her running after setting it on fire yeah i know because i know yeah. in um in the inquiry of ms terry they kind of it fleshes upon that a bit more um but yeah this is like this song overall just this is probably one of the few self-contained songs that's fully satisfying just from one listen like you can just sit there get like a really good groove and feel going on just by only listening to this song and literally nothing else by the band like most songs they are good as part of a collection with another song or whatever this one is like a full contained self gratifying piece so again kind of showing a bit more casey's green thumb i brought up um kind of the the interesting production element with the song earlier and we were kind of jumping the guns so now that we're to it i find the production of this album particularly interesting because when whenever there's a there's a vocal a vocal line or an instrumental line about this place they are at which is the, the lake and the river it's very like pretty and flowing in the background and you can hear that in this song it starts with the do 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 it's just very kind of pretty but then you get Ruse got the piano set up too keeps, yeah like everything everything <laughs> beneath Everything backward is just yeah. Play that line. Do you know what? Play uh, it. which one? Jamie, pull that up. <laughs> uh, this is uh, the beginning of Inquiry of Miss Terry. Uh, no, not the beginning. The um, no, he's talking about the uh, the Lake South Reprise. He's talking about Lake South Reprise. Ah, uh, the uh... yeah. So yeah. that one. Yeah, um, exactly. Yeah, so we have that kind of, I mean, not necessarily the motif in general, but we have that kind of feeling whenever the, the lake and the river is brought up. And in this song in particular, there's this snare that keeps cutting in. It's strange to me the protection of the snare is so kind of encroaching upon the experience. And when you listen to like, the lyrics as a whole, you know, you kind of get the, the feeling that Miss Terry's kind of sad while she's at home. Because at this point, she goes back to the dime. If I'm kind of relating it back to the comic book... It seems at this point he's grown up a little bit. She went back to the dime, presumably because they were running out of money, resources. Mm. So she's she's sad while she's at home. And then, uh, you know, when she's at the dime, she's just putting on kind of a front. And then you have the snare that keeps cutting in during these soft parts. And to me, if I'm thinking of this as like a meticulous setup on Casey's part, it, it's almost like an intrusive thought of hers. That even when she's at home, she has this this thing that's pestering her. She has this this feeling of just shame or just regret or something like that that's just kind of a persistent thought in her mind because this snare almost to me seems particular because it's it's the only part on the album where the snare just really cuts through everything else hmm. i actually really yeah and if we go into do you guys want to move into the next song or i think we exhausted the meaning of this song 
Yeah, I mean, it's not really clear why she goes back to Dimes. We're making some inferences there. Um, and, and then the She doesn't the go back to the Dime in this the... song. This song is just kind of, I'm pretty sure her leaving. This Like like you said in the previous analysis, pl- places people, the stage is set, showing her moving on, trying to advance beyond the Dime. Well, that that was City Escape. Yeah. Are we on the Increase Miss Terry? Or am I just like lagging? Yeah, we, we, we moved on a little bit ago. Uh, I'm sorry. But I'm, I'm talking I'm so much, it's hard to keep up. So I guess I just quick production. But in, in any quick. in any case, the comic the comic and the music don't line up in this sense because the the time frames for how things happen are shifted significantly with the comic. Like in the comic, it's basically implied that when she goes to the dime back to the dime, she doesn't come back for years. I mean, it's basically Hunter saying, "I don't even remember what her voice sounds like. I don't remember who I even call mom." So I have to keep telling it to myself. So it's kind of implying that she's gone for a long, 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 long time. And I, the only way I can put it into the music is in the inquiry of Miss Terry. So I think that's where it happens. But the the comic and the album, in this sense, kind of depart from each other in, in a way. Yeah. I, one thing also, uh, I guess just since we we're not really blocking things around, I just wanted to quickly touch upon production. I wanted to grab Rue's hand for a bit. Um, with this song, yes. um, you can hear a bit because Casey, when he was in the receiving end of Sirens, that's more of a, I, I guess that's a punk rock band. I guess you could classify it as um yeah yeah it's more aggressive and you hear on especially on the drums the way he uses the parallel compression and parallel distortion on everything like it's just really crushed similar to kind of what he did he didn't do that as much with act two but it was really strong on act three um which we Mm. talked about in episode zero a bit which we figured it could be used thematically but for the symbols you can hear that it it maintains every little bit of transience in there so when it starts right off, just like with the uh, with the snare and the uh, cymbal coming in, like snare and hi-hat, it just sounds really strong mm-hmm. when, he, when Nick hits that crash and it has like a lot of impact to it. And that's yeah. one... Th- that's one thing I really like about this album too is it it does have that really it feels raw but still aggressive. Like this album like in, in an objective standpoint doesn't sound as like refined in the high fidelity as like the later releases because you know budgets go up and higher quality microphones come out. This is this album was made what 13 years ago it was released. So Yeah. yeah. So that that means that like stuff wasn't as easy to do back then. Like it's easier than it was in the seventies and eighties when you had like reel to reel and stuff. But this is like nowadays you can have like what I'm using. I'm using an actual microphone, like a good microphone routed through a uh, routed through my interface into my computer without breaking the bank, and all my stuff like going yeah. digital and everything. This is like at this point it was like harder to come across that higher quality equipment because it'd be way more expensive. But the way Casey kind of worked with it to his favor is really strong. The way he was able to break in all the instruments get them all to sit together properly without any one thing overpowering each other and just the fucking meat of the drums along with casey's just meticulous like ear for his guitar tones just pair together so nicely yeah Yeah. i think i mentioned to someone a while ago that i i think act one sounds like the the best band camp demo you've ever heard like it, it, you can kind of hear that it's just it's Casey doing a lot of this himself. It's him doing it, starting out as a side project. It's it's like a, it's a small thing that one guy has a vision that he's doing, and that's, and it, even though it doesn't have great great production, like something that would have a lot of money behind it, to me, I mean, and that's not admonishment. That's saying it, to me, it sounds like the best band, 
Bankhead demo you've ever heard because it's just it's really raw, really personal, but it's also just huge. That's an interesting perspective. I, I think it's great uh, sty- stylistically how the production style it, it seems to mature as as the boy does in the story throughout each album. I think there's definitely a, a correlation there between the boy's kind of naivety, his his youth and his innocence. Uh, you know, there's a correlation there to the to the production value in in each album. So I think that kind of rawness in the in the production and that kind of that kind of demo ness of it, if, if if that's a word, probably not. But I, I think that lends itself really well to uh, kind of the context of the story of, of of the boy being young and naive and innocent and not really knowing, you know, where where he is, what, what he's doing. And what I also um, find really interesting, actually listening to, because uh, I'm listening to the song, like I said earlier, back and forth while like we're going through this. Um, I can't, I don't know if you're able to tell this, but it kind of sounds like there might be gated reverb over the drums when he, when, before the chorus kicks in. I don't know if you heard that too, Rue. Can't, yeah. But, I think um, I know which, which bit you're talking about. Yeah. Like the whole, like all the way up to like around, ha- I think it's around halfway through the song when the chorus mm. comes in. No, it's around, the chorus comes in around one minute, 153 ish. But, um, so yeah, almost halfway. But, and he like, when you hear, uh, when you hear that final crash hit and kind of leading into the chorus, it kind of gives you that feeling of suspense, you know? Like what comes yeah. next? before getting like punched in the face with the course like you did when uh like you did when the lake south ended and going straight into city escape that kind of similar feel hmm so yeah absolutely yeah that's just really interesting i don't know i like i tried to i tried to draw some inspiration from that in some of the mixes i do uh casey what he does is interesting is a lot of vocalists what they do especially nowadays is they record multiple tracks of themselves uh with a you know one or two in center usually harmonies and then one left one right for with mm-hmm. uh and casey what he seems to do is he doesn't he doesn't seem to record his vocals like you know as in double or triple tracking it he uses the uh acapella style harmonies for the with which I think works mm. to his benefit in its unique sound, but could also make his voice sound weaker as a result. Mm. So I don't know. What, what are your thoughts on that, guys? Do you, do you agree with me? Disagree? I regretfully, well, I'm, I'm, I'm sure, thankfully for everyone listening, but regretfully for myself, I don't have much to say about production just because I am quite the bystander uh, in, in the world of it. So, I mean, I think you guys really, as far as I can tell, are saying brilliant things. So I'm just going to, say you guys are you got you know what you're talking about and i'll take a back seat on this one <laughs> what do you think real yeah I'm, i mean i think uh i think it's something that kind of de- develops from album to album i definitely see what you mean in, in act one with running that risk of having these kind of more more weaker sounding vocals because because i'm quite a big fan of the double tracked triple tracked uh sound in yeah, vocals that's what I as do well. my stuff yeah so it's but i mean it, it's a it's just the choice isn't it of of the textures that you want to use and and your 
your your approach to arrangement and i think in terms of the overall arrangement of of the album um i, I think it works perfectly fine even I mean, if it's not necessarily what you're used to listening to i i think i i know with um my philosophy with mixing is that uh you can have everything filthy but you need to have one thing clean and organic sounding in the mix um i see usually the debate is between going with either drum or either with guitar or vocals casey seemed to choose a vocal route through this how um his cool. vocals are the clean organic thing tying together like the massive instrumentation on this album because hmm. uh i noticed on the city escape uh casey like well, not casey but nick has like the kind of cut up south drum sound that you would hear on the black ep and yeah. um and Casey's kind of tying that together with his with what sounds like just a bunch of like one takes throughout the verses, which is really cool. But overall, this is this is the song where when I was li- listening to it, like uh, I listened to it first on my studio monitors, and then went back and listened on my uh, on my headphones for like more detail. But this is this is a really good mix for what Casey was going for on this album, even yeah. though he did improve as it showed with the later acts. And yeah, it even mm. says on the on this produced by Casey Crescenzo, so. But yeah, that's my thoughts on the production of this. Well, I think uh, we, we've pretty much wrapped up the inquiry, Miss Terry. When it comes to 1878, The Pimp and the Priest, and His Hands Matched His Tongue, they all happen so close together as far as story goes. Like, this is where the comic really starts lining up with the music. I know Casey didn't want it to be a, when you hear this, turn the page type comic, but in some ways... I think ways, they did that with the Amory Wars for Coheed, didn't they? Well, I mean that that has its own storytelling faults that I think are kind of hard to relate to. But yeah, it's it's very but like think, turn the page. I think that's with, like with the that. way they intended it though. Is as you're listening to it, you could turn the page, you know. Uh, unless I'm yeah, wrong, I think Kate, Casey specifically said in this one that he didn't want it to be a, you know, uh, like a kid, almost like a kid's book. Like, oh, when this happens, turn the page here, and like Elmo's kind of walking through the the process. So when it comes to 1878, 1878, the pimp and the priest and his hands match his tongue. They all happen pretty close together as a matter of fact 1878 and his hands matched his tongue kind of happen concurrently with the pimp and the priest happening parallel to it mm. so basically 1878 is hunter being by himself out in the woods whether or not it's for an extended period of time like the comic suggests or just periodically for long periods of time it's basically him coming to his own learning his own place in this little world that he's made up kind of you know uh expressing that naivety and like what's what's going on here why am i alone what's what's outside of this place uh and that's that's where he falls in the hole the the very well-known line you know uh, fell another hole for the knife um and then this is where the comics get confusing because the person who helps him out of the hole is this future self of hunter which isn't quite hinted at in the music but this is where i think it's metaphorical i i thought so too but when you when you look at it in the comic it's very direct interactions like hunter the young hunter even interacts with the natural world in a way that the old hunter tells him to based on foreknowledge so i i really think this is this is some sort of i mean crossing over from act five to act one i almost feel like hunter goes straight from act five straight to 1878 like because he he helps hunter out of the hole like physically helps him so he's able to physically engage with him in some degree and one thing we should probably mention before we get too into this is 1878's name came from that being the year that the dime was established right so yeah this is the the time period in which it's taking place so that that's just for Uh, reference white songs which almost to me that's almost another clue that this is hunter going back in time because i mean it's the only song that really that the title sets up it doesn't relate to the music at all it just kind of sets up a, a temporal place 
And to me, it's almost like Hunter, he's back in 1878. I mean, that to me, that would kind of support that theory that he finds himself back there. Hmm. Yeah, actually, now you got me thinking because he, Hunter was, uh, yeah, so Hunter was, I think, in his mid teen years when he met Misleading in Act Two. And, um, like, he was around 15, 16, from what I recall. Maybe, maybe a little younger. Uh, and at the end of that whole story, which I don't think was going on for too long, I'm pretty sure that Act 2 was a pretty seamless flow in the short term of things. Yeah, I, so, I don't think it takes place more than a few months, Act 2. Yeah, so, like, mm-hmm. so he goes off to war afterwards, the Great War being World War One, which started on July 28th, 1914. And so this being 1878, if because I don't think... I think 1878, like you said, might be an illusion because assuming that would be the year could, that Hunter may have been born or may have like been old enough to go over to see any of this stuff, it's like he would have to be in yeah. his like mid 30s. So like the times, the timing wouldn't line up. Oh well. Well, Casey well. also Casey also has a few goofs when it comes mm-hmm. to to things that happen within the time period. Like he he mentions telephones before telephones existed. So he he basically told us like hey sometimes i can't really tell a linear story within this time frame but i i think the name of 1878 that's, that's is why you said it's a slightly alternative universe right yeah so it's we can kind of make inferences based on what events are happening at the time but when it comes to the name of 1878 it doesn't fit in any context other than saying hey look we're back in 1878 and this lines up in the comic where future hunter comes across a younger hunter so to me that's almost I don't know if Casey had a plan the whole time, but to me, it's basically saying this is where Act Five ends and comes back in. I see. Mm-hmm. I think that I think that Casey, see Casey when he wrote Act Two, it was a lot of repurposed stuff from the Dear Misleading demos, and the Dear Misleading mm-hmm. demos were released out of break, out of like heartbreak, which um, Nick said in the last episode was on a uh, relationship that turned sour. So that being here, I think that it was just a repurposed song that Casey didn't really put much thought into. As opposed to this album, which Casey kind of tried to put more thought into to make up for it and sure. uh, build more of a plot. Because it's really hard to write a concept album that makes sense as well as having the good music to back it. Particularly five concept albums. Like this yeah. is, I mean, it's a, it's a sprawling story. So, I mean, the fact that there even is this level of cohesion is impressive. That's why I think Act 2 is more of like Casey. I think, I think that's why I think, I think that's why. Yeah, blah, I think, I think that's why <laughs> Act 2 is more of a Casey. That's a preview kind of, of Steve's new song, by the way. <laughs> I think that's why I think, I think that's why Act Two is more along the lines of like Casey kind of running with the punches kind of thing, like how I said how I write lyrics, where it's like line by line before it starts meaning mm-hmm. something. I don't even think it was supposed to take place in this time period. I think that a lot of that just kind of happened to come into form, and Casey thought later on, "Hey, this is when it should take place." I mean, I can't say that without talking to the man himself, but that's my sure. perspective of it. But. Which, which hopefully we will be able to talk to the man himself at some point. But yeah, there there is a lot. Hey, of, if any of y'all got the plug, let us know. The, well, I, I have a bit of a plug, but he's 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 busy right now. But as far as like the enigmatic story elements go, it's it's kind of hard to tell what was cohesively designed from the beginning and what was kind of um kind of put together from elements that were already established. So I mean, it's uh, it's 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 difficult to get in the brain of Casey because he hasn't quite talked about it too much. He's talked about it a little bit in that there are parts of Act Four and Five that he kind of made up as it was coming. But he also said once Act One happened, he knew how the story was going to end. So it's hard to say what he knew at what point in time when he had the idea for the time period it was going to take place. A lot of that is just kind of our own level of speculation, which is kind of the cool thing about this music is that there's a lot of. You know, we can sit here and talk for an hour and a half about what we think about the album instead of just going and reading 
interviews where Casey said, oh, yeah, this is the exact story. Like, I kind of like that he's left it up to interpretation like that. I'm actually looking through this. I'm trying to get other people's perspectives on this. But uh, for the most part, I guess we kind of dissected that song to the best of its ability. I mean, do you have anything else you guys want to say with that? No, that's basically how 1878 works. Hmm. All right. So I guess we'll move on to the next track. Uh, the Pimp and the Priest. Yeah, my bring, favorite song on this album. Oh my god! And probably mine it. too. Definitely the highlight. I know what's really funny when I first discovered the Deer Hunter. Um, I, when I first got really into music, I, I said this in episode zero was around two thousand four, two thousand five ish. One of the releases from two thousand five that somewhat grabbed me, and I still think it's only like a really half good release is uh, "A Fever You Can't Sweat Out" by Panic at the Disco, uh, which is very much that kind of swingy sound to it. It has that very vaudeville, loungy kind of sound, which mm-hmm. I really grew attached to from like the half of the songs on the album that actually go by that. And when I go, uh, when I go back to, when I went back to listen to this and I heard that kind of like sound, I'm like, this is awesome. This is exactly what I want. And I didn't even know I wanted it. So when I heard that intro of just the little, uh, the little fumbling on the snare and the toms before, um, before going right into the, I'm pretty sure it's a saxophone when it starts. No, that's a uh, trumpet. Definitely. It's a trumpet, the, but I the think main, also- the, the main theme I think, yeah, but yeah. I think it's like no, but I think it's later with the saxophone, or no, it's later with the tuba. I think it does, yeah, the, the beginning, the very first part that comes in is a is a muted trumpet, so it's got a. It sounds yeah. like a straight mute to me. It comes in no, it starts off with a muted trumpet. Yeah, I I, I don't know where it comes. Where it sounds it sounds, it sounds a little too. I don't know. It sounds a little jazzy to be a trumpet. I don't know. Maybe I'm that just, very beginning line. That's definitely. No, I'm not saying the very trumpet. beginning. I'm saying afterwards when oh, it kicks okay. in, when it starts opening up. But um, anyway, regardless, they, I love the, uh, the feel of that song. And I didn't really get a chance to count it out. Is it in 3-4, Ryu? Yeah, yeah. So, so it's in that kind of uh, meter of 3, the 1, 2, you gotta three, hear, I guess 1, hear from stop. 2, 3, a 1, 2, Yeah, this three. one's 3-4. So yeah, it's, three, four. Four. it's waltzy. The Inquiry of Miss yeah. Terry is actually 6-8. Six, six, so they're, they're kind six, of... 6-8? Oh. The Inquiry of Miss Terry, I'm pretty sure. I counted it out. I'm pretty sure it's 6-8. Okay. Because with with three with three four you can really with three four you can really hear the beginning of the phrases like in um, in the pimp and the priest you can really hear where those phrases start and end and it's yeah. every three three quarter notes whereas mm-hmm. inquiry missed Harry's longer phrases so it seems to me more like six eight mm. and they when did they actually um, hey Rue you want to play that uh, that reprisal that comes from the pimp and the priest on the piano real quick ah uh, the uh... yeah that's yeah. One. Which is such an iconic theme. Yeah, so that's yeah, actually I mean, referenced that, in that Act appears, 4, I believe. Uh, yeah, so it appears also in, in Church and the Dime, which is kind of... it. it it's such a, a nod to the Pimp and the Priest, but you obviously get a... In Church and the Dime, you get the... Uh, so... Yeah, the, the way these reprises, 
the way these reprises are used are so fascinating. Because it would be easy to just throw in a reprise and just say, okay, well, there it is. There's your fan service. But, I mean, the way that it's kind of augmented and, and played in yeah, a particular so, song, so, I, so I the chords, love the way he does that. So harmonically as well, it's, it's just great. I mean, even the, the reprise of that in Act 4, again, like harmonically is different. You've got the... Uh, And then you have it come back in an Act Five in yeah. uh, um, uh, Mr. Usher. Yeah, Rue did a whole video on this. This is his forte. Yeah, yeah. I've I've spent way too much time looking into all of this, but I love it. Yeah, luckily, luckily Rue's there to know all this stuff because I don't even think I could pick out all the reprises if I wanted to. There's just there's so many, and a lot of them are so subtle, and that it all starts here. Like this, this starts building. Yeah, that's up what I'm saying. At least on the foundation. Music. Like when I first, mm. when I listened to the Deer Hunter initially, I couldn't tell one song from the other because each act was like one big song to me, and the acts flow literally the albums flow together. So like it literally the only way I could tell the difference is the production, and in the, even then with four and five I can only really tell because four is a bit more happy than five. But like overall, when I when I listened and I heard him coming up, I just assumed that like I may have remembered it from a previous listen. I didn't really think too much of it being a reprisal from a different song. Yeah, it's it's one of those, the, the way the acts are set up, they're, they're set up in such a way that you can have unique experiences every time you listen to it. I mean, I, I've listened to each album probably, shamefully, hundreds of times each, and I still can pull out something new each time. I mean, it's really the details are so minute and so meticulous that you just you can almost interpret something completely different after two different lessons oh my god on my last fm after i started uh, scrabbling things i was at thousands of listens with the deer hunter i'm scared to see what it's like before i even started using last fm oh my god <laughs> yeah so the, the pimp and the priest as far as where the story is that we we talked about this character a little early on when i kind of went over the story um, th- this is him. Well, it, to me, it seems like he's welcoming back Miss Terry, which is why I said it's kind of ha- coinciding with 1878 and Sands Match's tongue, because it's almost a different set piece happening at the same time. But he's basically welcoming us back to the dime. Not only Miss Terry, but us. He's bringing us back to this this place and just setting up the here's what happens here, kind of setting up himself as this malicious, evil character. Um, and it's it's one of the. I mean, if 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 this song hadn't set out the pimp and the priest, I mean a lot of the things about the acts would fall apart. So this is a very crucial song as far as like understanding not only where we're going to get with mis- uh, misleading, but also where we're going to get in Act 4 and Act 5 with the corruption element and stuff like that. Mm. What, what I love about this this character is is how Casey is, has used lots of kind of language, uh, kind of literacy devices in g- giving personality. So what I mean is things like the constant use of sibilance, uh, kind, kind of giving this kind of hissing uh, sound. So, you've, for example, you've got uh, confess, oh confess, uh, in the chapel or brothel where we suffocate stress. Oh my uh, God! What a lyric! Mm. What a fucking lyric! Absolutely brilliant. That's my. F- I and think that's probably yeah, my favorite well, lyric that, that's that used, ever written. And sibilance is used so much, especially in a. I think in in the bit sweet four, they come in crowds to hear them speak. You yeah, know, a lot, of, whole, a lot of heavy alliteration. Is that, is that kind there. of? It's definitely just Casey something loves his word so unique. Alliteration. It's so unique. I think the the sibilance. It's so. It's used predominantly, I would say, when it's 
anything regarding the pimp and the priest character. And I think it's meant to represent that kind of, that kind of, almost kind of slimy, like a snake, you know. Yeah. Be, being that and kind jump, of character. jumping forward a little bit into Act Two, I mean, we we see a physical representation of him as basically a pig, and that's that's been represented as basically yeah. a guy in a literal pig mask. So when, whenever we would draw this divide between the pimp and the priest as characters, I mean, this obviously the same character, but two different interpretations of it. We get these kind of shifts, like. Uh, I mean, it's always very animalistic. Like you said, it's almost being, almost being compared to a snake, and then later on, he's a pig, and it's just it's interesting the way that this character is is created just through such simple things. I mean, the, the alliteration of the S's, which I hadn't noticed mm. before. So again, just pretty incredible. Um, and then you know the the use of the kind of pig representation. Um, it's just very, like I said, meticulously designed. Yeah, and just going to the story. Uh, so the pimp and the priest is basically uh, Ms. Terry going back to the city to go back to her job, where she will mm-hmm. suffer. Hence the suffocate and stress kind of thing. Talking about like the men at the club treating the women like objects. Um, going to his hands, mash his tongue, which is uh, the boy encountering some dude who basically says that you will need to take care of Ms. Terry because one day she won't right. be alive anymore. And that's why I say 1878 and his hands master's tongue are basically story-wise right after each other. Because 1878, older Hunter helps younger Hunter out of I the I think hole. they happen alongside each other. Uh, well, It's like, meanwhile, yeah, then goes over there. Yeah, that. his hands master's tongue is basically, like, after he helps him out of the hole, it's directly into his hands master's tongue, which is basically saying, like, hey, um, he didn't want to say it so directly, but hey, tell your mother you love her. She's not going to always be here. Uh, and the comic represents that a little bit more closely. Like, he literally says, like, tell your mother that you love her. Uh, someday she'll be gone. Um, so I, to me, these these two, uh, story-wise, flow directly into each other. I mean, obviously they're uh, intersected by the pimp and the priest on the, the set list, but they're telling a very direct story that kind of is parallel to the pimp and the priest. Exactly, that's what I'm saying. It's like a meanwhile thing. For the title of His yeah. Hands Mashes Tongue, though, do you think that it's an alliter- alliteration to, or not alliteration, but an allusion to hunter seeing his future self or do you think it's some sort of more metaphorical meaning than that well in the comic uh it it makes a point to show older hunter's hands they're all scarred up and cuts and they they literally look like red hands even though i know the song red (laughs) hands that will come back to is about about misleading but literally if you look at the comic young hunter asks older hunter what happened to your hands and he said something i regret um and then you know, because the the topic of hands comes up a lot. I mean, we have this song, we have Red Hands, we have in Act Five, um, most cursed. Um, yeah, the most cursed of hands. So this this theme of hands. I'm not quite sure Basically how it's like literally... the Tarantino of hands. <laughs> he just really really loves hands. Yeah, <laughs> uh, it just it keeps coming. I'm not sure if it's like a direct interpret. Like if we're supposed to be literally thinking of hands, but the comic, the Act One comic, as weird as it kind of is in the context of the story clearly kind of demonstrates that the hands are important in some way so mm. i don't know in what way his hands are like his tongue uh, i in i always assumed it was kind of his hands being tied in the sense of there's nothing he can do about the situation he's in and in the same way there's nothing he can really say you know in the sense that you know he, he's completely not in control of anything really in his life and that's just a, a constant theme that comes up 
So I think that's my interpretation, really. I would, I would run with that, the more kind of metaphorical interpretation, if Act 1 didn't make it a point in the comic book to, to point out his hands. Like, it, it basically looked at us, the reader, and said, hey, did you see that guy's hands? Yeah, so, I mean, like the way I don't you're know what it, it is about Hunter's hands that are so important, but his hands are for some reason very important. I don't know, man. Look down. No, but with the uh, when you said how his hands are um, are really cut up, and I assume that could be parallel with his tongue being really cut up, kind of feeling like he said all he can say. Kind of, it kind of ties into what Rue's saying. If it's like it was all cut mm. up with lacerations and everything, and Hunter's tongue sure. kind of feels like that, and even his like judgments or any of his selfish desires, kind of, he's kind of exhausted himself. Yeah, and with it, yeah, there's so many, and with it ending, so many ways to interpret it. With it ending, sing softly, bring me to the lake. Kind of like he, there's really a lot of talking about singing and that kind of act. So I think that's where it could kind of tie in. Well, the the sing softly isn't that is that also at the end of his yeah. master's song or is that just 1878? I'm reading the lyrics. Okay, I, I trust you. I was just I'm trying to. I'm can, reading Hunter. I'm doing my job. Okay. I I figured I figured Craig was doing all the the research yeah so. no at the end of uh, his hands matches tongue is the acapella sing softly oh that's right yes yeah, yeah. Yeah. i had to go back and listen and then it and then it goes into the the river north which i think is also an interesting track in kind of uh when we talked about earlier how the first two tracks were basically a literal interpretation of the stage on which this story is going to be happening i feel like the river north is kind of the same way and when you listen to it kind of production wise mm-hmm. it has this crackle like it's on an old victrola or something Yeah, when I first listened I'm not to, sure. uh, I mean, it even has the uh, the applause, you know, at the end. Yeah, so it kind it, of it reminds so you. It waits so long before. It kind it, of it brings so you back. Before doing that, yeah, it's like two yeah. minutes of silence. It's a f- and then like it's it's almost like the the orchestra warming up, and then they go, they swell straight into the beginning of Act Two. So I mean, obviously it's. Direct, it's directly saying up act two, but it's kind of hard to tell in this album in particular. And I think this is pretty much the only album where it does it, which is why it's so weird in, in the, the set piece of the acts, where it has like, here, this is the story, and this is a different place where the story is taking place. You know, the first two tracks, and then the, the River North is obviously like that. I mean, because mm. it has the orchestra warming up, it has this kind of crack of Victrola going on the whole time, where it's like, um, it's almost like it's playing you. A music in universe like it's not just music happening it's music being played yeah it's it's like um mm. i think also the crackle and pop is also kind of to signify the time period sure but it, been a bit again it kind of creates this divide between the literal like events of the story and then the the representation of the story like there's act one's pretty much the only time that it has that like the story is like caked in between telling the story you know what i mean yeah i mean it's strictly a uh it's strictly a song that you can only really listen to in context right so yeah like and act one is kind of the only album that does that which is why touching on what i said earlier it kind of sets itself apart from everything else hmm. yeah it's it's really uh, act one in and it's in itself is just like a really it's a different album it, it's not like it's not as much of a black sheep as i think act three is in their discography but like it definitely has its own goals and aspirations and what it's trying to do uh, to set up everything. Cause like a lot, of, 
a lot of the fans who listened to Act One when it came out were people who listened to the receiving end of Sirens after Casey left, like right after, and then listened to Act One when it came right. out. Where like when you have Act Three, Act Two is like when a lot of the fans kind of latched on. Uh, and Act Three is just kind of such a different animal. In fact, I was looking, uh, I was looking just the way Casey promoted it, and Casey wasn't like going to extensive lengths like he does now. He was just kind of like on MySpace, you know, which we need to bring back. Yeah, he back back in the day. I mean, it was really about who you knew and and where you were in the scene. I mean, I, I, obviously, I think the Deer Hunter couldn't have happened without receiving as a end of Sirens. But in a way, this album is is telling, hey, Receiving End of Sirens fans, we're doing something different here. Like, it, even when it starts out, it's basically creating a strict divide between that's what that was, that's what this is. I even mm-hmm. spoke to so fans it, in the group who said that uh, when they when they wanted to go listen to The Deer Hunter and they started following from Act 1, they're like, well, it's not the Receiving End of Sirens because it's a different album. It's not like full right, force. Based- like, Receiving End of Sirens is very much like a higher production, way higher production for the time. And it's a um, and it's a lot of just kind of like rock and it's like not rock it's like pop rock punk rock kind of style where this is much more kind of intimate and natural sounding. Right. So yeah, I think Act One comes out of the gate basically telling. I mean, it's almost like a message straight to uh, fans who are expecting something to say, "Hey, this is gonna be a different thing." And that's why it has so many of these like um, ornate set pieces, kind of setting up the framework of the story, whereas it doesn't necessarily directly relate to it. So it's, it's just very interesting the way Act One came out and, and how you can kind of hear that in the representation of the music and the way it was produced. And it's just, it's, I wouldn't say, like, you mentioned Black Sheep earlier. I don't think there are any Black Sheeps necessarily, but I think oh, Act I'd say One it's is kind of like the, such a dark album. I mean, I wouldn't consider it so, but I, when we're talking about Act One, I think Act One is more like the runt of the litter that you like. Yeah, I could see you that. Kinda, you kind of cherish. You're just like, okay, yeah, you're, you're, I'm going to protect you. You're cute. Like it's 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 not in in the flock, but it's something that you kind of hold separate from it, and it's like precious to you. That's that's what Act One is to me. It's like the the runt of the litter, but still very much, you know, affectionately considered. And even with the artwork, you can kind of this is like one of the albums where you look at the artwork, you kind of know for a bit what you're in for. Like, is it? It's just like because the artwork is very much understated too. Like if you looked at Act Two, it's a bit more flourished with the tree, and Act Three is much more red, right. you know, with blood. And I think the um, the original vinyl covers had just the acorn growing into the tree, and Act One was just an acorn. Yeah, I have it. I actually have those yeah, vinyls. Yeah, so it's. I mean, he he really drives home this this theme of, I mean, basically the tree of life, but in in this context, um, you know, you basically have the tree being bare. I I think he just he really enjoys this, the storytelling kind of element of of the trees, and he's he's very driven as far as like how he represents certain themes and emotions like he doesn't always just want to tell you this is what a character's feeling this is what they're going through sometimes it's very subtle in the background like oh this means that they're dizzy or they're they're going to sleep or something and then this this means that he saw a certain person i'm not going to tell you you got to figure that out it's a journey you have to go on on your own and this is like the beginning of that journey yeah so act act one like i said it's not an album to me necessarily but it's it's so crucial that if you took it if you took it away, everything else would kind of collapse, mm, like an album. Anyway, mm. those are our feelings. Uh, Rue, what do you think? What are your final thoughts on Act One? Act One. It is the start of an amazing journey, and to be honest, that pretty much sums up my thoughts. Really, it's it's just something that you need to experience for yourself I don't think 
a few guys talking about it on a podcast is going to do the album much justice. I think on the off chance that you've come across this podcast and never heard of this band, first of all, it's very strange. It's very strange, but yeah, it's an experience. It's it's an experience that everyone that that no one can really explain it. You know, no one can do it justice. So. I'm not going yeah, to try to do it justice, really. I think it I know is. every everyone wants to represent their favorite band as being something special and set apart from what everyone else listens to. But I mean, in in as many objective ways I can think of, the Deer Hunter really is something special. Whether you like storytelling elements, whether you like progressive rock, whether you, if like, you like colors, indie sound, yes, whether you like colors. I mean, they they just they do so much that I think there's something there for everybody, and it it tells a story in a way that I don't. I can't think of any contemporary that does does it the same way. I mean, it absolutely. really is something to experience. Without a doubt, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, if you even if you went into it the way I did, where you start off in the middle or you go back, I think Casey said the order he wanted, he thought would be more interesting for people to listen to, is four and five, where you listen to kind of the end, and then you go back to the beginning to where it all started. Like a, it's like a record scratch. Wait, this is how I got here, kind of thing. <laughs> I bet you're wondering how I got here. So like, but going, but. With Act Four starting with him kind of like washing up ashore, you know, it's like it does have that beginning kind of feel to it, and this kind of shows how Casey's starting to come more into his own with what he wants, and then he goes back to Act One, Two, and Three. I think it's better to listen to it straight from the beginning. That's my opinion. I don't have any machete order of how to listen to these albums. Yeah, Casey definitely uh, at least has suggested the machete, like the the whole record scratch thing. Like you're supposed to, in his mind, and this isn't him saying you have to listen to it this way, or even it's best enjoyed this way. But kind of the story probably makes more sense this way, which is that Act Four and then record scratch. I bet you're wondering how I got here. One, two, three, and then all right, let's get back into it. Five. So. Yeah, it, it's it's something. I don't know, I, but overall, I really do uh, enjoy these albums, and I guess with that, we conclude our episode on Act One. Yeah, we did about an hour and a half, which is, I mean, I'm almost scary to think of how long we'll have to take the other albums. We'll have to, we'll have to work on that flow. I'm scared to think about I, editing it. I might have to offload it to Craig. Jesus. Oof. Craig, I hope you're yes, ready. Craig, Craig's going to have to take over. And I, I you, you can throw it over to me and I'll do the most amateur editing job ever. Like, it'll just sound all over the place. <laughs> well, but yeah, I, I had a great time talking about this episode. I'm really looking forward to doing more um, for, for those who are listening and intend to enjoy what we're doing here. Um, we have an interview with Gavin Castleton coming up, um, one, the newest addition to the band. Uh, not only is he a, a big part of the new sound, but he has a very robust solo career that I think we'd love to talk to him about. Oh, it's going to be so we much fun. Coming up. Yeah, we have that coming up really soon. I mean, that's that's going to be a, a great time for me, just personally. So even if you don't listen, I'm going to be having time in my life. But <laughs> I encourage you to. Uh, and then we have our Act 2 and Beyond episodes coming up. We're going to do yeah. every couple of weeks. Uh, and we're having a great time with it, so we're going to keep the train mm. rolling. And we hope you guys are right along with us. I hope you guys uh, enjoy what we're doing. Uh, again, I just want to give a thank you to Area 22 Productions for helping make all of this possible. Um, you can check them on Facebook and all that, yada, yada, at Area 22 Productions. Um, my name is Steve May on Facebook. You can find me on Instagram and Twitter at Drakontas underscore, D-R-A-K-O-N-T-A-S underscore. Uh, if you're interested in whatever stuff I have going on, you can follow my band, Elisions, uh, E-L-I-S-I-O-N-S. And uh, what about you guys? Where can they find all of you? Rue, why don't you go ahead and start out with that? Cool. So you can find me at Rue Nottage, R-E-U-N-O-T-T-A-G-E, on all social media, really, on mainly Instagram and Facebook. Um, alternatively, I have just picked up some tickets for the show 
in New York. Oh, it's going to be uh, fun. For the upcoming tour in November, so I'm going to be flying up. Steve is going to be hosting me, which is going to be a lot of a lot of fun. Uh, so I'm trying to make my way there, so we'll that will be we great. Meet up a little bit. You see, by so me in the cast, get some beers with us. Absolutely. Do what? Let's see about meeting the cast and get some beers with us. It'll be a good time. Yeah, I'm, I'm hoping I can make it. I'm going to really try. Hunter will Skype in. Yes. Yes. I'll, I'll do some Skype beers, definitely. All right. And what about you, Hunter? Uh, we know they could find the group at the meaning of and all things regarding the deer hunter. Subtle plug. But uh, what about your your stuff? Yeah. Uh, well, my name is, is Hunter Workman. Uh, real name, not fake one. Although I did once convince somebody at a show that I changed my name to Hunter because I'm such a big fan. That was a very amusing moment. Uh, but yeah, my name is Hunter Workman. You can find me on Facebook, uh, the the Tweet Zone, um, the the Instagrams as uh, Megadrugi, M-E-G-A-D-R-O-O-G-I-E. Um, same handle for Reddit. Uh, really, I'm in as many places as I can be because, well... That's just what I do. So uh, if you want to follow us personally or as a group uh, with the Deer Operation Podcast, our Facebook page is set up. We have an Instagram page that we're going to be loading to. Um, so hopefully we can all make this a nice collaborative community experience, and hopefully we continue to have as much fun as I've personally had the past three episodes. So it's it's a good precedent set so far. Awesome. So with that, we want to thank everyone for tuning in. Uh, please be sure to check out this band if you haven't already. Uh, if you have, please... Uh, Give us your feedback on what you think, what you want to hear us cover, uh, any artists or anything. We have some really big stuff that we've been putting into the works for future episodes that we're so excited to tell all of you about. Uh, but please also follow us on uh, Facebook on our page at Dear Apparition Podcast, as well as Area 22 Productions, where we'll announce all that stuff. But with that, I want to thank everyone for uh, for tuning in through this uh, lengthy, lengthy episode. It might be two episodes by the time it comes out. We don't know. But thank you all, and uh, have a great day. Thank you. See you guys. Bye.